Okay, let's take our Bibles and open it to Ephesians chapter 1. And let's read the whole prayer again of, from verse 15 and up until verse 23. Today we're only going to focus in on the first two aspects, first two things that he prays for. And simply summarize like this as the Christian's glorious future. We're going to really start to look into um, what is our futures as believers. Um, and so yeah, let's read together from verse 15. And as we read... Remember that this is the word of the Lord. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you for your, your grace and your mercy. Lord, um, as we've just read, we need your spirit to give us, to help us to know you and to know the glorious hope that is ours. Father, I pray that for every believer, every Christian here, that you will remind them and refresh their hope in you. For those who do not know you, Lord, that they might long to know you and long to share this eternal hope that we have. Father, please help me in the preaching of this, Lord, that I would be clear and accurate and preach in a way that is honorable to your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there was a man named Philip Henry, the father of Matthew Henry, who wrote the famous commentary on the entire Bible. And Philip, this is a story where Philip was in love with a lady, and this lady was from a, a much, much higher social status, social class than he was. But he was especially attracted to her because of her godliness. That was the reason why Philip wanted to marry this lady. Now, naturally, her parents were a bit concerned over this match. So they asked their daughter a, a very fair question. Where does this man come from? Her answer is priceless. She said, I do not know where this man comes from, but I do know where he is going. Okay. Now, of course, she was referring to that simple fact that he was a Christian and that Philip is going to heaven. So for her, that was enough. Now, that is true for all Christians. All Christians have a glorious future. We know where we are going or we are supposed to know where we are going, and that is supposed to give us the most unshakable, unbeatable, unchangeable hope in any and every circumstance. Our past and even our present might be dark, but to know where we are going makes a massive difference. It makes a massive difference. And this is really what Paul is praying for the believers to know in this passage. You'll notice that he prays specifically for three things. If you notice that in verses 18, he says, 
that you may know that is what is the hope, that's the first thing to which he has called you. Number two, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And number three, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? So he's praying for three things, three prayer requests, you could say. And all of these prayer requests are meant to help you and me to know God himself better. Remember, verse 17 is really the heading of the whole prayer, while verse 18 is really the specifics of the prayer. His main concern is what we saw last time in verse 17. Just read verse 17 again. This is like the heading of the entire prayer. It says, That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. So he's praying, Father, give these believers the Holy Spirit so that they might know you more, that they might grow in the knowledge of you. So how will believers know God more? What must we know specifically to grow in our knowledge of God? By knowing our hope, by knowing the riches of God's inheritance in the saints, and by knowing the power that is now at work in us. The same power that rose or raised Jesus from the dead. Now to simplify it, Paul is really praying essentially for two things. Okay, so this is to simplify it, okay? He's praying firstly that Christians will know their glorious future and secondly their present power. So he's praying that we might know our glorious future and our present power. He's praying that these believers might come to a greater understanding of what they already have, of what they already possess. So this afternoon, we're going to look at that first half, um, the prayer that Christians might know their glorious future. Now, those first two things are actually two sides of the same coin. The first two prayer requests that Paul is praying for is the same thing, but from different perspectives. First, he's praying that we might know our hope in God and God's inheritance, okay? that we might share an inheritance in heaven. And secondly, he's praying that we might know God's riches in us. It's amazing, right? So it's like the first one focuses on our perspective and the second one focuses on God's perspective on us. And that will be our outline. Christians have a glorious hope in God and God has a glorious hope in Christians. And that last one almost sounds blasphemous, but <laughs> that's why we need it, right? It's in the Bible, so that's why we need to know this, that not just are we looking forward to go to heaven, God is looking forward to having us in heaven. And we're going to look at that a little bit closer. But before we dive in, it is important to, right at the outset, say what is the difference between the way we tend to think about hope and the way the Bible talks about when the Bible says we have a hope. So the Bible's hope is not wishful thinking. Okay, it's not this, well, I hope it will rain today, and it doesn't rain, right? So that is not, when the, when the Bible says hoping in God, or that we might know our hope, it's not that we might share heaven, might go to heaven. No, it's like this, the Bible's hope is a certain expectation of future reality. It is a certain expectation of future reality. It's not a matter of if, but a matter of when. That's the Christian's hope. Now, if I can give a small illustration of that, a biblical hope is like the hope that me and my brother had when we were little boys just before Christmas. Okay? And it was always a treasure hunt to find our presence in the house. Okay? So we would often scour and search the closets and to find our present. And it was always, my, my parents didn't learn, but it was always at the same place. <laughs> but 
but it was uh, it was well put because it was too high for us to get so it was always right at the top in the closet but we could see the wrappings and we could like try to guess okay that bigger one is mine and that's going to probably be yours and but that that hope so we 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 don't have it yet but we know it's ours it's only a matter of time there was that certain expectation that we are going to receive those presents at christmas we didn't doubt that it was only a matter of time now in the same way christians has that certain hope we know what is coming we know jesus is going to turn we know we are going to be with the lord forever it's only a matter of time so Biblical hope is a certain expectation of future reality. That is what biblical hope is. Now, with that background, let's first consider the Christian's glorious hope in God. This is the first thing which Paul prays for, the Christian's glorious hope in God. And he prays for that in verse 18. Just look at 18. He says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So that's the first thing he prays. And I just want to make six observations of this hope, of this text. Six observations about this hope that belongs to our calling. Number one, this hope is Christ himself. That's our hope. Our future hope is Christ himself coming in glory. That is the biggest, the easiest summary of what we are hoping for. So it's more accurate to say we're not hoping for a thing. We're hoping for a person. That is what we are hoping for. And the first clue that that hope is not just something from God, but God himself, Jesus himself, is found already in verse 12. Just look back over at verse 12 again. How Paul describes salvation. He says, so that we who were the first to, what? Hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So being saved... And having hope in Christ is the same thing. That's a similar expression. Christ is our hope. To be fully saved, not just now, but one day to be fully justified when he comes again on that judgment day. That we will be declared not guilty. Turn over to chapter 2 verse 11. Just turn over to chapter 2 verse 11. Paul says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers of, to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You see how, how closely these two things are related, being separated from Christ being without God is the same as having no hope. Isn't this so true if you think about people, unbelievers? If you do not know God, then this life is all you got. How sad. At funerals, it's the end. No future hope, no expectation. It's over. You have no idea of how life hereafter works or you have a wrong understanding of how it works and when you die you realize that you're going to be separated from God forever. You really have no hope. Like Solomon would say, it's life under the sun is vanity. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Life means nothing. So true hope is found only in God. It's found only in Jesus himself. And here's the nail in the coffin. The nail in the coffin is actually the some of the parallel passages in Colossians. So you're welcome to turn there. It's also going to be on the screen as well. But just on a side note, Colossians and Ephesians 
are very, very close parallels to one another. So you'll see the same biblical themes, the same kind of structure. Um, so all of the parallels of Ephesians you'll find in Colossians. That's why Colossians are often a, a good place to go if you want to cross-reference what Ephesians is talking about. And listen to how Colossians speaks about our hope in Colossians 1 verse 27. Listen to Colossians 1 verse 27. It says, To them, that is the Gentiles, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. And there we see again the word, the hope of glory. Paul clarifies, it is Christ himself. It's Christ in us. He is the hope of glory, the hope of that future coming of Jesus. Glory refers to his second coming. That's what it says, the hope of glory to his second coming and us receiving a glorified body. Just a few chapters later in Colossians, Colossians 3 verse 4, so still in the same book, it says, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So Christ is the hope of glory and when he appears, we will appear with him in glory. We will be like him for we will see him as he is. The Christian's hope is Jesus' is coming in glory. And what will happen? We too will appear with him. We will share a resurrected, a glorified body. Listen to Philippians 3 verse 20. Philippians 3 verse 20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Titus 2 verse 13 says, Waiting for our blessed hope. What is our hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible is consistent. It doesn't stop saying the same thing over and over again. The Christian's hope is Jesus himself. He's appearing, his glory, and we being transformed in his glory, in sharing his likeness. So back in Ephesians, we see that not just will we have a glorified body and we will see Jesus as he is, but we will also be united and live on a perfect, perfected physical universe, heaven and earth. Just look over again at chapter 1, verse 9 to 10. Ephesians 1, verse 9 to 10, it says, Making known to us the mystery of his will according to the, his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We will be raised with Christ, live on a physical, beautiful, perfect heaven and earth, which there will be nothing but joy. And here's the summary, Revelations 21. Really the, the main summary of our hope is Revelations 21. It says, verse 1 to 4, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine Jesus himself wiping away your tears? Will there be anything more glorious than that? 
Can you imagine living in a world where there will be no more death, no more dying, no more separation, no more crying, no more pain, suffering, no depression, no fatigue, no end of the year, like let's just get over with this year, like we can start new and hopefully next year will be better and nothing like that, right? No more loneliness. Never ever experiencing loneliness, never ever experiencing frustration of any kind. Frustration in working, frustration in relationships, frustration in what you need to do and accomplish. Never having a body that will ever be frail, weak, forgetful, right? Can you imagine never being bored? Never being bored. <laughs> only joy, only perfection, only perfect joy in the presence of God. Well, that is where you're going. That is your hope. That is what Jesus is going to do. And he says, I'm making all things new. So every time we see a broken relationship, a broken marriage, a broken body, a broken brain, a broken whatever in this life, it should be like a longing. Your soul must cry out, Lord, come soon. Maranatha. Just like the whole creation is groaning, our own bodies are groaning and longing for the coming of Christ. But the good news is, He is coming. That's your hope. So that's the first, and that's the most important observation. Our hope is central. It's, it's Christ Himself. It's His coming. It's not all the other side benefits. It's Jesus Himself. Him and Him coming and renewing us and renewing everything else. But here's another observation we should make, and that is that the Christians, Christian always has this hope whether they see it or not. This is so, so important. Notice that what Paul is not praying for. He's not praying that God should give you hope. What is he praying for? That you might know the hope that is already yours. Isn't that amazing news? Look at verse 18. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Now this makes sense. If our hope is Jesus himself, then you always have hope. Because Jesus never changes. Hebrews 13 verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So the question is not whether you as a Christian have hope. The question is, do you know your hope? Do you Believe the hope that you already have. Are you seeing it with the eyes of enlightenment? Imagine a man that doesn't believe the sun exists because he always lives in a cave. He says, the sun can't be real, I've never seen it. Does that make the sun any less real? Any less, less powerful? No. In the same way, you as a Christian might not see your hope, you might not be able to understand it, but that doesn't take it away. That doesn't mean it's less real. That doesn't mean that this hope is going to be taken away from you. It doesn't mean it is less true for you. This is extremely encouraging for you. The Christian always has hope, always, whether you believe it or not, whether you see it or not. Thirdly, and this is an important clarification, right? Uh, even though this hope is always there, whether you see it or not, to know this hope makes a massive difference now. That's why Paul is praying that we might know it, so that it can impact the way we live, that it can change the way we feel, that it can impact the way we make decisions. 
do you know what a massive difference it makes to really believe that one day there will be no more suffering? There will be no more tears. There will be no more injustice. Do you know what a massive difference that makes now? Not one day, but already now. It gives you energy. It gives you strength. It gives you endurance. Just to share a small example. Now, recently, like, they've broken in at our church in Clarksdorp. They've stolen the pipes and they've stolen the, the water meter. And water is gushing out of our, in our yard. And there's something that triggers me a lot. Like uh, I was raised like every drop of water is valuable. So like I always close the tap when I brush my teeth. I know some people, you know, are true Baptists, letting the water flow and, you know, but like, so any type of water waste is like an incredible, I feel incredibly bad. I hate myself. I hate everything. Everything must stop. This water must be saved. And when they stole our water meter, now, I don't know, they wanted that for some reason, <laughs> Water is gushing out and we called and we called and nobody is coming and nobody's coming. And I just see the water gushing out and I am completely helpless. I'm sitting there watching and I feel like I'm going crazy and I can't stop this. And I had to say, well, Jesus is going to come back. <laughs> He's going to, there's going to be enough water in heaven and earth when he comes again, right? I don't have to save all the water now. Like, and that was the only thing that kept me sane. So for you, beloved, so for you. You see, this, this hope makes a massive difference now. Another example is I remember when Alakai was just two months old and Deborah gave me Alakai and said, take him or, he, or he's dead. And I said, okay, let me save him. Let me save my baby, save my wife from my baby as well. And I remember just walking around with him for hours, like just walking with him and just feeling, what am I doing with my life? My life is worthless. <laughs> I'm not achieving anything. I could read a book. I can, I can, you know, do so many things with my time. I'm, I'm busy walking with my son. And again, this thought came to mind. I can do mundane things. I can do things which the world might be tempted to say, you know, if you do that, you're just wasting your life. You're just wasting your time. Your life is meaning nothing. I can do that because I know I have heaven. I have eternal life. I can sacrifice myself, my time, my body, my money, everything for my family and for other people because Jesus is coming again. It's okay. It's okay if I do mundane things and if I have a low paying job or if you have a low social, if you're in a low social status, it doesn't matter what the world thinks of you. It doesn't matter. You're going to heaven. You're going to be with God. What a difference that makes when you are caring for your dying wife or your dying husband. Or when your wife has Alzheimer's and she becomes a baby again. What a difference this makes when you have to bury your son or your daughter. Knowing that this body will be transformed. This broken body will be raised from the dead one day. What the difference when you have sickness and you feel like your body is wasting away to know that this body is going to be perfect. What a difference this makes when you feel the sting of rejection, when people reject you, neglect you, persecute you, to one day know that you will never ever experience anything like that ever again. So yes, the Christian always has hope, whether you see it or not. Oh, but what a difference it makes to know it. 
And that's why you need to pray for the Holy Spirit, to ask God, God, help me to not just know it, but to believe it. And that's the third observation. This hope makes a massive difference. Now, here's the fourth observation. This hope is for the life to come. <laughs> okay, so it's kind of connected to the first one, that it's Christ himself, but this hope is focused not in this life, but for the life to come. It's still coming. The resurrected body hasn't happened yet. Only when I look at my wife, I doubt if she doesn't receive the glorified body yet, right? That's the only time I doubt it. <laughs> but this hope is still future. This means, now this is why this is practical. This is not your best life now. Does that sound familiar? Right? How many Christians get this backwards? How many Christians think, how many pastors, how many churches promises your best life now? In this life, you're going to have riches, your dream job, a dream family, whatever you want in this life. Just make a tax-deductible donation to my ministry. And the effects of that is destructive, right? If your hope is in for something in this life, you'll be sorely disappointed. It's only a matter of time before either reality happens or suffering comes. And now because you were promised, you wonder, is God real or is my faith real or is any of this real? And you throw it all away. There's only four chapters in the Bible that doesn't have sin in it. Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelations 20 and 21. Four chapters. The rest is sin-soaked. Is tragedy soaked? Is trials soaked? We're living in a Genesis 3 world. In, in a sense, it really doesn't matter how healthy you live. Because we're all going to die. We're all going to the grave. Life under the sun, as Ecclesiastes says, is vanity. It's vanity of vanity. Everything comes to an end. Naked we came into the world. Naked we will return. You will leave you cannot take anything with you. Put your hope in money and you'll be disappointed. Either you will have it all and realize that money cannot make you happy. Or you will never have enough. You will always want more. You always want the new thing. Put your hope in your wife or your husband. After a week of marriage, you realize they can't make you happy. <laughs> you realize you've married a sinner. I didn't know she's a sinner. Be, be married long enough and realize very quickly that your marriage, for your marriage to last, it needs something much deeper than physical attraction. It needs something much deeper than feelings. Put your hope in your children. You also will realize that they were never meant to satisfy you. How quickly mothers realize this, that their little angels, as Vody Buckham says, is viper in, vipers in diapers, right? They were not these amazing little, uh, thank God they're cute. Okay? That has saved many a child. <laughs> okay? And more than that, put your hope in your children and then realize what a mistake that was when they leave the house. Right? The first step of marriage is a man shall leave his father and mother. If you've wrapped your whole life around your children and your children leave and you look to your left or to your right, you see, oh, I have a spouse. We don't know each other anymore. We've so wrapped our lives around our children. We've so planned all of our schedules, all of our hopes and dreams on our children. And now they're gone. What now? They will move on and then you have nothing. 
Put your hope in pleasure. Put your hope in entertainment. And you realize that the highs might be very high, but the lows are also very low. The Friday and the Saturday nights end. The pleasure fades. You need your new fix. You need your new high. And the new high must always be a little bit higher than the previous one. And when you've got that, it's amazing. But then when you are in the, on your ordinary Monday or your ordinary Tuesday, you feel again empty, looking for more, looking for joy, looking for something to satisfy you. No, beloved, our hope cannot be anything in this world. Anything. Not even the best things, like marriage. It cannot be even in our marriages. It cannot be that. It cannot be in achievements. It cannot be in a degree, in a job. In a, it cannot be in anything except God. God is the only one. I love how Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has placed in us an eternal soul. God has placed eternity in our hearts. And only eternity can fill eternity. Only God can fill us. Therefore, it only makes sense that we were not made for anything in this world. Jesus said, John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If you are thirsty, you're looking for Jesus, whether you know it or not. If you are looking for joy, you're really looking for him. And he's available. He says, come. Come buy without money. Come drink without any cost. I've paid it all. And since God never changes, and since our hope should be and is in the life to come, our joy can also be constant. I love Habakkuk. The end of Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 3, there's an Afrikaans song on it, it's beautiful, but listen to Habakkuk 3, 17, it says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice, where? In the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Since our hope is in God, we can say with Job in Job 1, 21, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We can say with the psalmist who almost lost his way when he saw how the godless, how unbelievers are prospering in Psalm 73, what we read in the beginning. It says 20, 73, 25, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail and they will. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is our strength. God is our portion. God himself is our inheritance. So beloved, never despair when God is your God. Never despair in this life. Never cave into the despairing hopelessness. Look up. Learn to say in your darkest nights of depression, what Psalm 42 verse 5 says, Why are you cast down Oh, my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hoping God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Fifth observation we need to make is, is that our hope is utterly secured by God's sovereignty. Have you noticed Ephesians, this is kind of a theme in Ephesians, the, the sovereignty of God in all things. And I think it's, it's really um, by the way Paul writes the end. He says, there's not just any hope in verse 18. He says, that you may know what is the hope to which he has 
called you. I believe this calling that the Bible speaks of here, that in the Bible you see there's two kinds of calling. The first is known as a general call. That's the call that we do when we share the gospel. We call people to repent and to trust in Christ. That's a call we, we preach the gospel, telling people that they should come to him. But the second call is referred to here in our passage. This is known as God's effectual call. This is the inward call of God in our hearts when he opens our eyes, when he shows you who Jesus is, when you start to see the reality of Christ and you respond with repentance and faith. Just like God called Abraham from a foreign land while he was worshipping idols, so God calls Christians out of their sin into a new life. Listen to 1 Peter 2 verse 9. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So in other words, this calling of God in the heart is a sovereign call. It creates what it commands. It is the same sovereign call when God created the light. When he said, let there be light, and there was light. It's the same call when he said, Lazarus, come out, and Lazarus comes out. This call of God is irresistible. Because God changes our hearts at the moment of that call. We come willingly because God has called us in our hearts. And we see that most clearly in Romans 8 verse 30. Look at Romans 8 verse 30. It says, Those whom God predestined, He also called. There's the word again, right? And all those whom He called, He did what with? He justified. All of the called are also justified. But not everyone is justified. Therefore, not all are called. That's what Jesus said as well. Many are called. Oh, sorry, that's not, that's not the right text. But few are, many are called, but few are chosen. Sorry, um, that, that's not the right reference there. But, but in this text, we see it very, very clearly, right? So that there's a, there's a connection between those who are called and those who are justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Sorry, that call of Jesus there, I think it's the general call of Christ where he calls people to come, but those who are chosen, they come. And here's the point. So the point of this is that by connecting our hope with our call, if the beginning of our salvation is secured by God's sovereignty, then we know that the future of our salvation is secure. Your hope isn't based on your faithfulness. It isn't based on your ability to endure. It's based on God's faithfulness and His work to complete the work He began. Philippians 1 verse 6, I'm sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So beloved, your hope is secure by God's sovereignty. That is, that is where we our, our ultimate hope is. It's not even in our own faithfulness, but in God's faithfulness on our behalf. And here's the last observation we should make, is that this hope of ours does not come naturally. So to really know this hope does not come naturally to us. Okay. Why do I say that? Well, we know that because of what Paul is doing here. He, is he just telling us about this hope? No, he is praying for, for the believers. He says, Lord, help them, give them the Holy Spirit, that they might know this hope that is already there, that is always there. And he's praying for these believers, those who have their eyes enlightened to see that, because we often forget. Because... We often are overwhelmed by this world. We often feel that our trials and our burdens and our sins are just too much. Like Peter, when we turn our eyes from Christ, we sink. 
So, Baba, the only way for you to truly know this, to truly believe this, is to pray for it. You have to pray for it. You have to ask God to give you the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation in the knowledge of Him that you may know what is this hope of yours. Therefore, to really see this hope is hard work. It's hard work. It is to expose your eyes daily to the glories of God's grace, His love in the Word of God. It is to ask daily for the Spirit to open your eyes that you may see wondrous things in His law. On the flip side, also, it is to remove anything from your life that kills your desire for God, that kills your desire for the Bible and for prayer. Sometimes things are not bad in and of themselves, but they just suck out the desire in your soul for the Word of God and for prayer. They kill your spiritual taste buds for the Word. And therefore, you might even have to decide to stop certain things, stop watching certain things, stop playing certain things, stop doing things that keeps dragging your attention away from your eternal hope. That's why Proverbs says, keep your heart with all vigilance. Keep your heart. Learn to keep it. We need to watch and pray that we may not fall into temptation. So this is what God wants for you right now. You have an unshakable, an eternal, and a heavenly joyful hope waiting for you. But here's the flip side, and we close our time together with this. So not just does Paul pray for us to know our hope in God, but he's praying that Christians might know God's glorious inheritance in us. God's glorious hope in us. Look at the rest of verse 18. Look at the rest of verse 18. He says, And secondly, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? That sentence is amazing. It's the second thing Paul prays for that we might know by experience. What are the riches of God's inheritance in the saints? In other words, we should know, not only know how rich we are for having God, but we should know how rich God is for having us. That's what the text says. The riches of God's inheritance in the saints. Listen to this quote from Kent Hughes. He says, God owns all the heavens and numberless worlds, but we are his treasures. The redeemed are worth more than the universe. God considers himself rich for having us as his people. Not only are Christians looking forward to being with God, but God is also looking forward to having us with him. When is the last time you thought of heaven like that? That is not just something you are going to enjoy, but it is something that God's going to enjoy with you. But that's just what the text says. Okay, now let me make an important clarification. This is the difference, I think, between biblical doctrine and worldly doctrine, you could say. God values us not because of who we are in ourselves, but because of His Son, and the fact that we are now in His Son. Okay? God doesn't value us for what we are in ourselves, but for what we are in Christ. That's the key. Notice the very last phrase of verse 18. Right? His glorious inheritance in what people? In the saints. How do we become a saint? Not by our own righteousness. God doesn't delight in us 
because of our righteousness. He delights in us because we are saints, because we are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. Again, none of us were saints at birth. Ephesians 2 verse 3 says the opposite. What are we by nature? The last line, we are by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's our natural state. But for the Christian, God no longer treats us like that. God no longer sees us as children of wrath because Jesus has died. He, our sins are washed away. Jesus has lived the perfect life. And now we are considered, counted with the righteousness of Christ, that God sees us as holy, holy, blameless, perfect. And it is as saints that God delights in us. It is as the redeemed, clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus, that God loves us and counts himself rich. So, beloved, this is important. God doesn't tolerate you. He delights in you. He doesn't just bear with you. He counts you as his riches. Is that the way you see yourself? If not, believe this text, what we just read. God delights in you because of Jesus. Now again, why that clarification was so important is because the common popular, man-centered, feel-good gospel says it was because you were so valuable that and so precious and so worthy that Jesus died for you. It was because God saw something special in you and that's what nudged him on to say, I'm going to send my son. In other words, it makes the motive for loving us something in us. We are really so amazing, so God just had to have us. Have, had to have us. But the Bible says exactly the opposite. Romans 5, verse 6 to 8. For while we were still amazing. <laughs> oh, wait, sorry. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the righteous, the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would David. But God shows his love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That, this makes God's love more, not less. It makes God's love more amazing that God didn't love us because we were worthy, but precisely because we were unworthy of His love. Precisely because we deserved nothing but His judgments, and He chose to love us anyway. The death of Christ makes us worthy. He didn't die for us because we are worthy. His death makes us worthy for God. Here's the biblical way to say it, right? Jesus did not die for you because you're worthy. You are worthy because Jesus died for you. God loves you in the beloved. That's the key. And yet, I, I'm, I wonder how many saints in this room just do not believe that God delights in them. What a tragedy that would be. How many of his adopted, chosen children that he has loved from all of eternity past does not believe that God loves them? We are tempted to say, but do you know me? Have you seen the sin that I have done? Have you seen how repetitively I sin? Have you seen who I am? How can God possibly love me? 
Dear Christian, listen to me. When Jesus died for you, he took into account all of your sins, past, present, and future. He did not just have a few of your sins in mind when he died for you. He had all of it in mind, and he died for all of it. He knew all of your sins, and he still went to the cross. He still delighted in you. Was the cross enough to pay for your sins, all of it? Or are your sins stronger than Jesus? Are your sins more than his grace? Is there a sin in this world too great for him to pay for, too great for him to conquer? No, may it never be. To say, to not believe that God loves you, is to make God a liar. Because he said he loved you, he says he loves you, and he showed you he loves you. For in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. This is actually a humbling thing to do. Humble yourself under the truth that God loves you. Humble yourself. Believe it. You are the treasured possession of God. Let that truth comfort your heart when you see your many sins, your many failures. But God doesn't just tolerate you. He died for you. He sent His Son. So this is what this text teaches us. God will be our God and we will be His people. That's the phrase that runs through the entire Bible. God will be our God and we will be His people. And the good news is that this day is one day closer to that day. One day closer. Our lives are very, very short. Only a few more years left. Only a few more years. We have to endure. We have to run the race. Do you have that hope living in you? Do you have that hope burning in you? If you don't have that hope, know that if you come to Christ, if you come even right now, He will wash away all your sins. If you believe in Christ, if you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus alone, you too will share in the inheritance with the saints. So come as you are. The rest of us, let us bank all of our hope on our hope. Amen. Let's pray together. Just want to use... Just give an opportunity for a few moments of silent prayer. Let's just use this time now to respond to God and respond to His Word and let us humble ourselves under Him. Let's use this time. Father, we thank you for our hope and thank you that our hope is Christ himself, his coming, that our hope is certain and that we always have this hope whether we see it or not, whether we believe it or not.
and that this hope is for the life to come. That's why, Lord, we are longing and we are even groaning for the coming of Christ to redeem our sinful bodies, our weak and frail bodies, and remove sin from us and remove weakness from us, that we might worship you fully as we were meant to. Lord, I pray that you will help us even in this weekend, Lord, as we fast approach the end of 2021 and looking to 2022 already, that we won't set our hope on anything in this world or seek anything in this world to satisfy us except Christ, except you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that in Christ that you delight in us, that you, that you love us, and that you count yourself rich for having us. Oh, Lord, it is... It's really too great and too marvelous to comprehend. We thank you that it is true. So, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. We pray in Jesus' name.